Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the day and the opportunity to glorify and honor you through music. These songs, Lord, that um, remind us of our future, Lord, is a a great promise awaiting us and one that we're going to read of tonight as well. And and, uh, we are anxious, Lord, for the resurrection, for the day that uh, we see you face to face. We thank you for this doctrine, Lord, that we hold dearly to our hearts, an essential doctrine. I pray, Lord, that as we study these words that Paul penned so many years ago, God, that you would uh, pierce our hearts again, that you would help us to understand these things. Lord, that just our, our foundation would be even firmer, that um, we would just be more assured of, of all that you've done for us and, and, and how everything that you've done makes perfect sense if, uh, if we just simply understand it, Lord. We pray that you would give us understanding tonight through the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, they, he's, Paul has been in the process of correcting the Corinthian church in various really moral aspects, some, some of the areas that they had gotten away from. But as we turn to chapter 15 and really his, uh, his final card, the, the last, his lasting impression, the thing that he wanted to leave with them, chapter 16 in a lot of ways is is um, uh, cleaning, cleaning things up and, and saying hello to these people. And, and, and there's a few things in chapter 16, and don't get me wrong, but the, the, the final thought he wants to leave them with is this, the, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead and wants to make sure that they were firm in their understanding. Why? Why is it so important that we understand the doctrine, which, once again, doctrine, don't get scared by that word, that just means teaching, the teaching of the resurrection of the dead. Well, as Paul's going to explain as we read today, it's essential to Christianity. If there be no resurrection of the dead, we above all should be most pitied, is what he's going to say here in just a few verses. That, that, that we have no faith. There is no, there, there, we have nothing to stand on if it, it is not that Christ has been resurrected, and that we too will be resurrected. It is essential to Christianity that we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Okay, And that's what he's going to bring his plane in on in chapter 15, his final thought. He began the chapter, and this is what we covered all four of us last week when we had 72 feet of snow, and uh, whatever it was. Did you hear Atlanta? Atlanta is like canceled school for the rest of the week. I just, I love the picture on Facebook that there's a, when there's a spilled solo cup with four ice cubes on, and they say, you know, in the South they're canceling school because there's four ice cubes. I've got friends down there that used to live in the North that have, have migrated to Georgia, and I've just been riding them hard because they're all, well, they don't have the equipment to take care of it, but anyhow, with all four of us here, uh, we, we went through where Paul began last week um, in the beginning of the chapter, he began with the gospel. And I said, I I wanted to look at just the gospel because that's our firm foundation. And as we walk with Christ and as we 
experienced church year after year after year, we tend to, or we can, distance ourselves from the simplicity and the necessity of the gospel. And I don't ever want us to do that. And so we will frequent looking back at the cross, and we will remind ourselves on a regular basis exactly what it is that Christ has done for us. And he, as he said back in chapter 1, he preaches Christ crucified. That's what he went to do to the Corinthian church when he went and established the church. He's reminding them of it again in his very first letter to the church. And so it was, it's frequent in his interaction with the church to remind them of the gospel. We shouldn't be any different. I think, and I, I think if a, 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 I don't know a whole lot about preaching yet, I'm still learning a lot, but if a, a preacher is worth his weight in salt, he's going to point you to the cross every time. He's going to point you to the good news with every sermon in one way or another. It's, if, he, if we don't do that as pastors, then all we're doing is, is simply trying to encourage your morality, trying to encourage you to be good people, which I want to do that as well, but for the sake and understanding in the light of the gospel and the good news. And so that's where he begins. And of course, part of the good news is that Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. He, on the third day, rose again. And we believe that, and that is, it is essential to our creed. We mentioned that word last week as, as we have a, a statement of beliefs. Calvary Chapel has a statement of beliefs. Every church generally has a statement of beliefs. And then even year, years and years and years and hundreds and actually thousands of years ago now, the apostles came together, the, the and, and, and then in the 300s specifically, the Nice at the Nicene Council, there were was a creed written, a, a statement of belief to say these are the things that we believe. Part of which would say, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that He rose on the third day, and that we too will rise in Him. And the proof of His resurrection, what Paul mentioned, where we finished kind of seven, eight, and nine last week, is that He Jesus appeared to the twelve. And then Jesus actually appeared to over 500 people. And then Paul went on to say, of those 500, many are still living today. He was telling the Corinthian church at at that point, hey, go ask them. Go ask them if they saw Jesus. And then, of course, Paul would say, I have seen him as well. He experienced Jesus on the Damascus Road. So we're going to pick it up in verse 9, which I believe we read last week, but just to kind of... Get the flavor again and then continue on. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. You with me? Okay, you're with me, right. <laughs> okay, thank you. I don't mind if you answer a question that I ask. For I am the least of the apostles, he says, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul here is not portraying some sort of false humility. He's not just merely putting himself down, oh, I'm the least of all the apostles. I believe that Paul felt this way sincerely in his heart to say, 
I know who I was before I came to Christ. And Paul says who I was was not a, a good camper, was not a good person. In fact, I stood over the stoning of Stephen. I stood and made sure that men and women that followed Christ ended up in jail. And I believe he carried that with him. Now, he, he, he's the one that penned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know Paul understood that. But he still felt the weight of his actions that he had done previously. And he still felt humbled by that, that God would even reach him, that there was grace sufficient for even Paul. And that's why he calls himself the least of all the apostles, because he persecuted the church. And then he says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, which would be an apostle. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul said, I've changed my life because of his grace, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. I love that. Paul says, I I came to recognize what God's grace is in my life and exactly what he has, (coughs) excuse me, rescued me from. And in light of that grace, I want to work all the harder to glorify his name. And that is the proper response. That is the response that you and I should have. As we see how beautiful, how wonderful, how majestic grace is, it is all, we are all saved by that grace. It's not based on the things that we do. It's not based on our merit. But yet Paul says he works hard. He says he works harder than the rest of the apostles. He labors not to gain God's favor, but in response to what God has done because he sees how much grace has been given to him. Paul's labor is a response to what Christ has done. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? That's worship. That's worship. It's our response to what Christ has done. The things that we do in response to what Christ has done, that's our worship. That's what Paul is saying here. I worship God full throttle. I go after God in my labors. I pursue him because I see the grace that was given me. Verse 11, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And Paul's saying it doesn't matter who came to you. As long as the gospel was preached, that's the important thing. Remember the divisions early on in the book? Well, I'm of Apollo, so I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Jesus. And the church wanted to say, these are the, these are the teachers that we're under. We struggle, a church at large, we struggle with that in America today. I don't know that you or I do per se, but there are celebrity pastors in this day and age. Oh, I only listen to whoever it is, Louis Giglio, Matt Chandler, David Platt, you know, um, Greg Laurie, Bob Coy, all those guys that have, you know, 20,000, 25,000, 10,000 people in their church, plus hundreds of thousands of followers on their social media. That's celebrity status. And there are many that would say, well, I'm of this teacher, or I'm of that teacher, or I, this is where, where I am. 
And that's a mistake. That's dividing the church. That's what Paul is trying to argue against. And he's saying in 11, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who brings the, the, the good news. It's that you have the good news and that you believe in the good news. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And so here is the issue that needs correction. Some believed in the, in the Corinthian church that there was no resurrection of the dead. How did they stumble upon this belief? Not real sure. Could have come from a, di- a couple different veins. We know the Sadducees, Jesus interacted with the Sadducees, right? And he had that conversation. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Jesus has a conversation with them to try to show them proof that, that there is the resurrection of the dead. Perhaps the Sadducees had come in after Paul established his church and inserted this doctrine that some grabbed a hold, grabbed a hold of to say... There is no resurrection of the dead. Could have been the Sadducees. It could have been, there were many different teachings in the Greek Greek culture, secular culture, that would say, once you're dead, you're dead. The Epicureans certainly believed that. And so, hard to say where the, the Corinthian church was picking up this idea, but some of them said that there was no resurrection, and, and Paul's going to address that. Now, what's interesting is, Everybody in the Corinthian church believed that Christ had risen from the dead. Where they got stumbled was they would say, but that's all. He defeated sin and death. He did resurrect to life, but we don't is is where they got hung up on. And Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. Your thinking is off base. On the contrary, look at verse 13. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Paul says you can't have, your, have these two warring thoughts. You can't say that Christ is risen and yet say there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul's going to say if you're going to say there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He's going to disprove that point, but he's just showing them their, their flaw in, in the thinking that they have. He goes on to say in verse 14, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is empty, is also empty. Paul's saying this is essential doctrine. This is essential to our faith. Without resurrection, without uh, the resurrection of the dead, we are hopeless. That's how important this doctrine is. This is pivotal to Christianity. He says in 15, Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised us up, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead did not rise. Paul goes on to say, If if there is no resurrection of the dead, I've been lying to you. And I'm a false witness because I said there is the resurrection of the dead. And if there is not the resurrection of the dead, then what I've taught you is a lie. Our preaching is empty. Your faith is empty. On top of that, we've lied, if, all of, if this doctrine is not true. 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, restating that. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, 
you are still in your sins. How about that? Not only is there no resurrection of the dead, if Christ is not risen, there's no redemption. You're not even, without the resurrection, there is no redemption of sin. I've lied to you. you. What you believed is in vain. You have an empty faith. We are false witnesses. And there is no redemption. In other words, he's saying, if there is no resurrection of the dead, what are you doing here? What are you, what's the point in having church if there is no resurrection of the dead? 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Okay, on top of that, you want some more bad news? There is no resurrection of the dead. Everybody that's died is dead, dead. That's it. That was the end of their life. Those who have fallen asleep, that's, that's a nice way of saying those who have died, that's it. They're, if there is no resurrection, they're done too. And then he says in 19 what I, I started by saying, if in this life only we have hope in Christ we are of all men the most pitiable. I love that line. Because that places such a strong emphasis on the resurrection of the dead. We, we talked John 10.10 10 on Sunday, right? Christ has come that we, we might have life and have it more abundantly. And I shared how, how that is. That we have life eternal. And that is a wonderful thing. And this is, this is a supporting text to that we have life eternal. But I also said on Sunday, but that's not, it doesn't, eternal life doesn't begin when we pass from this life to the next. Eternal life begins the moment we are saved. The moment we accept Christ, place our faith in him. And so the abundant life that Jesus speaks of in John chapter 10 begins, and we can have that even now. What Paul is saying is, is kind of the, it's the same thought, but in a different way. He's to say, if, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if life ends the moment we die, and there is no resurrection of the dead, then you don't have the abundant life now either. Because you're living a lie. And so, what's the point? And now he's going to take all of that and say, but that's simply not true, because there is the resurrection of the dead. He says in 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Love that. Christ has risen from the dead. Christ is alive. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ, there is the resurrection. There is the hope of the resurrection. Eternal life is eternal life. It's going to happen. We can, we can find our rest in that because Christ has risen. He is the first fruits. What is that? I love the practice of the first fruits. In the, that day and age, we, you and I, we tend, we don't really... Some of us might have a garden, but I don't know that any of us are, are farmers' farmers, per se. But in those days, very agricultural society, they would, as they harvested their grain, as they harvested their whatever they were producing, they would take the first portion, the first of it, and give it to the church and give it to God. A dedication to say this is... 
Lord, this is yours. The very first portion is yours. And and we would hope that in giving you the first portion that you would bless the rest. Okay? And so they would give the first fruits. It was um, a a feast that they would gather together. They would have a a party. Everybody would bring their first fruits. They would give some to the, the tribe of Levi to care for, to meet their needs. But also they would celebrate with this first fruit gathering. And you can kind of read about it if you're interested in Leviticus chapter 23. Here's what's interesting about Paul calling Jesus the first fruits. Do you know the day that they celebrated the feast of the first fruits? It was on the day after the first Sabbath after the Passover. Okay? They would celebrate the feast of first fruits the first day of the week after the Sabbath after the Passover. Jesus died on the Passover. Then there was the Sabbath. And then he rose on the first day of the week. And now Paul is saying, on the day they celebrated the first fruits, Jesus is our first fruit. Jesus rose on the, on the feast of the first fruits. And now he's saying, Jesus is our first fruits. The resurrection happened in Christ. He, he rose on that feast day, perfectly fulfilling it as he was the perfect sacrificial lamb for the Passover, he's also the perfect first fruit gift in the resurrection happening perfectly on that day. Uh, Verse 20 again, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I like that term for those that have left this seed body. They've fallen asleep. We can't interact with them any longer, but they are in the presence of the Lord. I believe that um, some would take this uh, word fallen asleep to mean a a soul sleep. I don't believe that. Um, I believe in the the, the scripture that would say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, That's that's where Calvary Chapel would stand. Um, I would agree with that. Um, But to us, they have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by capital M, man, also came the resurrection of the dead. And he's going to go into a comparison between Adam and Jesus, um, kind of echoed in Romans chapter 5, if you want to kind of read the same line of thinking. He, he, he writes something very similar there in Romans chapter 5. Verse 22 would say, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Are we comfortable with that? Do we understand that? That it is because you and I are descendants of Adam, according to Genesis, the account in Genesis, the historical account in Genesis, we are all descendants of Adam. Adam sinned. Adam had to suffer for that sin. And of course, he died because of that sin. So too, we all die because we are in Adam. That's what he's saying. For in, as in Adam, all die. Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. Because Christ has risen from the dead, he is our first fruits. Therefore, because in Adam we've all died, in Christ we all shall live. 
23. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, and he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. This, of course, the unfolding of the account in Revelation. Uh, he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. That would include death. He's going to say here, one of the enemies of Christ is death. He defeated that enemy at the cross. He resurrected to life. He puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. How does he do that? He takes all rule and all authority and all power. (laughs) And it's his. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. Love Paul, love his apostolic authority, sometimes get confused by his writing. (laughs) He sounds at times like he's talking in circles. I don't know if that's translation. I don't know if that's a, a, a literary prose that he's using to, to, it's almost like he's saying the same thing over and over in a slightly different way each time. I don't know how to explain it, but he does that now and again, where you just, you read a paragraph and go, uh, let me read it again. And then 20 years later, you're going, uh, I need to read it again. Here's the idea. <laughs> I'll try to sum it up. Jesus has been given the authority because he has defeated sin and death. He has resurrected to life. He would go, uh, in uh, Philippians, he would say he has resurrected to life. He now sits at the right hand of the Father. We know that the, that seat is the seat of authority. It's the seat of honor. And so in that, what he's saying, all things then are subjected to him because there is nothing between the Father and the Son. What he goes on to say then is that However, the economic trinity, which is still the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what I mean by the economic trinity is the way they interact with one another will still be the same. There is an authority, there is, there, uh, in the trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is a, a ranking, if you would. Now, that doesn't make one of those parts of the Trinity less than the other parts, but so that they can function together, there is an authority level. God the Father is at the head. Subject to God the Father is Jesus the Son, and then subject to both God the Father and Jesus the Son is the Holy Spirit. We see an example of this when he speaks in John, and we'll get there eventually, that he says... Jesus says, I will send you the Holy Spirit. But he also says within the same context, the Father will send you the Holy Spirit. And so we see in that, that both the Father and the Son have the authority to send the Holy Spirit, yet they are all God. With me? Okay. Wow. Um, Because the Trinity is something that will blow your mind if you spend long enough thinking about it. Three different 
parts all the same. God is, God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit, yet the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So dwell on that for a while. I was just trying to be like Paul, and if I spoke, you know, enough, and just maybe I'd get a little dizzy. <clears throat> all thing, just so that we understand what it says in verse 28, let's read that again. All things are made subject to him, him being Jesus, or I'm sorry, him being the Father, then the Son himself will also be subject to him. That's showing us the economic trinity that Jesus the Son is subject to the Father who puts all things under him that God may be all in all. Then he poses a very interesting question. (laughs) So he spins this confusing, to us at least, thought, and then he says, how about this, 29, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? What? <laughs> Evidently, there was a practice that I don't even fully understand it. That people believed that you could be I could be baptized for somebody that had gone on before who was asleep already, and that baptism would save them? I'm not fully understanding exactly what their thought was. Is Paul in this condoning the baptism of the dead? No. No, he doesn't say that this is a good practice. He's just using it as an example. And that's how we have to look at it. He's just, he's just saying, some of you out there in the Corinthian church don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And then there are others of you in the Corinthian church that are being baptized for the resurrection of the dead and, or for those that have already died. And so, which is it, he's saying? If, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then the people who are being baptized for the dead, that's kind of silly. He's not condoning the practice. He's merely using it as an example. I don't fully understand it. I know that there are still religions today, the Mormon church, that would practice the baptism for the dead. Uh, Each man is responsible for his own salvation. I mean, each man is responsible for his own sin before God. We stand alone when we stand before him. I I don't understand how that works. But like I said, we don't necessarily need to at this point because Paul is not condoning this, this action. He's not saying that, hey, everybody, as a church, you should practice this. He's just using it as an example, as a proof for the resurrection. And then he goes on, and I like the rest of the chapter because it's not as confusing. But he says in verse 30, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? If there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul's saying, why live this life? He goes on, I affirm by the boasting in which you have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
That's the thought. That's the thinking. If there is no resurrection of the dead, if there is no promise of eternity, what in the world are we doing? Like he said, above all, we're to be most pitiable. We've wasted our time. He, he says, I, I die daily. Think of Paul's life reading through the book of Acts, all that he had gone through. How many times was he left for dead? How many times was he beaten with rods, shipwrecked? Evidently, he fought beasts at Ephesus. What does that mean? I don't know. There's no record of him you know, being thrown to the lions. May have happened. Maybe he's speaking of the, the men there at Ephesus. I don't know. But he's saying, what, what's the point in me going through all this if it's only for this life? Years ago, I made a, a bumper sticker that... I liked it. I don't know. how I see it every once in a while on, on different cars. But it simply posed the question, what if you're wrong about Jesus? Consider the consequences. And in that, there is no me, me saying that or putting that on my car. You can't tell if I believe in Jesus or not. It just simply poses the question, what if you're wrong about Jesus? It's asking, what do you believe about Jesus? My thinking behind the, the bumper sticker would, would be to say, if I believed in Jesus and I lived my life believing that there was in the, you know, the resurrection of the dead and come to find out we get to the end of this life, there is not, what are the consequences for the way that I've lived? Well, my hope would be that as a Christ follower, what I have done is I've lived to improve other people's lives. I've lived others-centered. I've lived a good life encouraging others. And so if I were wrong about Jesus, at least I could say, because of my beliefs, I've done well to, to encourage other people and to, and to sow into other people. Now, we know that not to be the case because of texts like these. But if you don't believe in what Jesus has done, then you have consequences that are eternal, and you need to consider those. And so Paul is saying almost the opposite of then of what my bumper sticker would have said. He's saying, why live this life at all? Why would I get up and wonder if I'm going to die today because of my faith if there's only this life to worry about? And he pulls in this Epicurean thought to say, eat, drink, Tomorrow we die. If, if all there is is this life, go have a party. And who cares who you step on? And who cares what kind of life you live? What difference does it make? Tomorrow we're all dead anyway. Go have a great time. Just so happens that's the um, thesis of the Satanic Bible. That's, that's the number one commandment of the Satanic Bible. Do what you want. Do what thou wilt. That's exactly what our enemy would want, is that we would just live a life for this life. And that's kind of Paul's thought. If there is no resurrection, what difference does it make? And then he says in verse 33, and I like this, he, he brings the, 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 the point to a... To, or he brings it to a point. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Paul's like, you, he's going to call them fools here in a minute. You fools, you that, that would believe that there is no resurrection of the dead, who are you hanging out with? 
who's sown this thought into your head? Love that question. We need to ask that question of our lives as well. We need to pose it to our teenagers. Who are you hanging with? Who's, who's sowing into your life? Who are you allowing to speak into your life? What kind of teachings are you listening to? What kind of books are you reading? What kind of television shows are you watching? Who's sowing into your life? Because evil company corrupts good habits. The person doesn't have to be alive for them to corrupt you. It's just as long as you got it on a screen. Because we interact far more with screens these days than we do with people. And that can corrupt us as well. Who are you hanging with? May we be firmly established. May we um, allow good teachers into our lives. May we um, surround ourselves with godly men and women that would speak boldly into our lives. I have a lot of people that I would consider my friends, but I have a few that I would consider my close friends. Some guys, I mean, uh, Michelle, definitely, because she's my help me, and we, we, God has knit us together. But outside of our marriage, I have three or four guys that every time we talk to each other, we talk about the Lord. I hope you have that in your life as well. That's valuable. We need that. We need to, to, that's the iron sharpening iron. That's us rubbing against one another to say, are, are we continuing steadfast? How's your devotional life? What's going on in your life? What are you struggling with? How can I pray for you? What, this is what God has been showing me. Hey, here's a great teaching. Take a listen to this. Hey, let me show you about this. We need that in our lives. Christianity is not a lone ranger religion. We, we need people investing, leveraging into our lives so that we don't hang out with evil company. Awake to righteousness, he says in 34, and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's getting hard now, and I like that. He's, he's bringing us in. He's, he's, he's kind of hammering them. Awake to righteousness. He's like, quit Quit varying from what I taught you. Awake to living for righteousness' sake. Live a pure life. Continue to preach the gospel. Do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God, he says. There are people that don't yet know the gospel, and we're not living in such a way that they will ever know the gospel. Awaken to righteousness. Do not sin. I speak this to your shame. You're not preaching the way you should be. You got, that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. I can take that in my life. I hear that. I know that I'm not as bold as I should be. We still got a lot, don't we? Wow. I didn't know I was going to preach all that. That was supposed to be 10 minutes, and then we were supposed to get into the next stuff. I'm going to stop there, and we'll finish it up next week. Because from, from here, he goes on to answer the question, well then, if there is a resurrection of the dead, why do Christians die? 
great question, Paul. And he, he answers it well. I don't want to rush through that. So we'll pause there for tonight. And we'll just sing the same songs next week. <laughs> More resurrection. So, all right, let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Sorry if I sounded like I cut it short, but I just, yeah, I don't want to rush through what's left. So thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the encouragement of Paul, um, a strong encouragement to consider who we are surrounding ourselves with. Um, Lord, just open, open our eyes to the way we're living our life so that, so that people can see that we have hope, a hope of the resurrection. Lord, I so strongly believe in this doctrine, and I'm so grateful, Lord, that you, Jesus, have risen from the dead, the first fruits, and in that resurrection, everyone in this room has hope. Bless your name for that, O oh God. Bless your name. We praise you. I thank you for the opportunity to gather today. Thank you for... Um, Thank you for this word, God. And uh, looking forward already to next week and finishing it up. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless. God bless.